So one of the things that I always like to say uh, when we start courageous conversation discussions, because I, I do these a lot, is that each of us brings ourselves to the table, right, kid? We bring ourselves to the table. We bring how we were raised. We bring um, our day-to-day -day work activities. I'm supposed to be retired, but I failed that. That's another story. Um, we bring that to the table, we bring our upbringing, we bring all of those things to the table. So it's important for each of us to look at our DNA when we think about how we're going to delve into these courageous conversations. Um, only with family would one share uh, pictures of themselves growing up. You can laugh, it's okay, that is me. And I think I was about 10 years old then. Born and raised in Milwaukee, actually, at that time, you know, when you're poor, you don't know you're poor. People tell you you're poor. I wish they wouldn't do that, because you're quite happy. Um, but grew up in what was then the poorest zip code in Wisconsin, known as the 53206 zip code. And today, it is still one of the poorest zip codes in the state of Wisconsin. But grew up there and actually had um, God watches over all of us. Uh, my grandma, who you'll hear me quote often through this, some of her quotes were good, some of them I can't say to you. Uh, but she always would say, God watches over babies and fools. So, you know, what can I say? But then I think I was 10 years old, grew up in St. Philip's, uh, my pastor's here, Pastor Kimbrough, shout out. Um, I have to go back home. So, I grew up in the Lutheran church. I think I was five, five or six, and that's a story I can talk about in the workshop uh, for sake of time here, but grew up at St. Philip's Lutheran Church. The church that I belong to today is the church that I grew up in. And I will tell you, in Milwaukee at my time of growing up, it was very interesting. So when I was about six, six or seven, my neighborhood was somewhat of a racially and ethnically and culturally mixed neighborhood, Polish and German, and African Americans were moving in, Polish and German were moving out. I remember on the corner there was an uh, apron store, when we wore aprons, uh, a German couple, a childless couple owned that store and they actually adopted all of the young ones in the block. So I got to speak a little bit of German, haven't used it in years so can't remember any of it. But, but my point is, that neighborhood changed in three, three and a half years to an all African-American neighborhood. So while I started off with some inclusivity, by the time I was 10 at that age, uh, the entire zip code area neighborhoodish uh, was African-American because of the great migration. I then went from St. Phillips on to, yeah, that's high school graduation. That's a young Joan. Um, Graduated from Wisconsin Lutheran High School, and again, Ken and I are doing a workshop tomorrow, so some of these stories you'll hear in the workshop. But graduated from Wisconsin Lutheran, went there as a freshman at the time when there was not a lot of racial or ethnic or cultural uh, inclusion. I can give you some stories. Ken won't like this, so cover your ears. I can give you some stories about what it was like to be a freshman and sophomore during that time. But we, um, you know, God, God is good. As we always say, God is good. So graduated from Wisconsin Lutheran at age 16. Yeah, I was 16. I was 16. 16. I was 16. God is good. 16. And really just enjoyed most of my teachers. I'll, I'll whisper that. Enjoyed most of my teachers. So I had a good 
good upbringing. Uh, went on from there to, and that is a younger Joan in her 20s, um, medical technologist, I'm actually a hematologist by trade, but I will tell you that story, and we will talk about that um, tomorrow around strategies. At 26, they promoted me to the laboratory director, the only African, no, I wasn't the only African-American in the building. The dishwasher, we had one dishwasher. You used, you didn't have disposable glassware. We had a dishwasher and she was African-American. But I can give you some stories about being the supervisor over a lab where no one looked like me. That was real interesting during that time. So think about that as we think about our DNA and think about what we bring to the table for all of these discussions. Oh. That's me, that's where I finally supposedly retired from uh, a year and a half uh, as Vice Chancellor of the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. And Milwaukee, as you know, pretty urban setting, uh, but what I enjoyed the most about it was that there were a lot of people who didn't grow up in urban settings that I got to interact with, so it was a great learning opportunity for all. And finally, wanted to share with you that what also grounds me today, so from that 10-year-old, to today, this is actually uh, a reunion that we had at church. You can tell it's pre-COVID because we're all nice and cozy. Um, so it was, I want to say 2019. But what I want you to know from this picture, this is the uh, inside of my church, St. Philip's in Milwaukee. What I want you to know from this picture is that probably half of these individuals after me uh, went to Wisconsin Lutheran High School and graduated from there. So that's important for me to share with you. Ken, what's your DNA? My story starts in Seattle, Washington. My parents actually um, met and married there. My dad was a journeyman electrician. I didn't know until many decades later uh, that my father didn't graduate from high school. Eventually got a GED and was able to get his degree as a journeyman electrician. Um, work took them to Michigan, and I grew up in a very rural setting. Yes, I could ride Heidi, my dog. She was half German Shepherd, half St. Bernard. Um, <laughs> that's probably age six, seven. And it was an ideal childhood in that sense. I had fields and forests to play in, but I had no diversity. It was a very um, white, experience for me. In fact, I didn't have a classmate of color through grade school, high school, really college or the seminary that I can recall. And certainly not any friendship or real relationship with anyone. So it's a very different kind of, a, of experience for me. But God has a sense of humor because I don't think any of that prepared me for cross-cultural ministry, both maybe my education or my life experiences. But my first parish experience was actually a risen savior on the northwest side of Milwaukee. And this congregation was uh, an all-white congregation, but it was in a neighborhood that had changed, that the neighborhood was overwhelmingly African-American. And the congregation was 70% over the age of 70, 70% widows or widowers, and 100% um, white. But in that, the congregation realized that that wasn't the future of where they were at. They had a choice, they could go somewhere else, or they could become an oasis where they were. And they chose the path of trying to reflect the diversity of their neighborhood. And so through a lot of hard work, and a lot of failures, and some successes that God brought, 
we watched uh, the congregation grow in its diversity. It grew in different ways, but it also grew in its diversity. By the time uh, 2011 when I left, it was about 27% of the members were people of color over that period of time. And a couple of three different building projects to the end. My ministry then led me um, from this, this place of risen savior to Wisconsin Lutheran High School. And Wisconsin Lutheran High School had really been experiencing about 10 years of enrollment decline. Um, we were kind of struggling with the question of diversity, like what are we supposed to be? What, are, what is the future of the high school even? Um, today, very different. Um, the high school, and shout out to our 18 kids who are here, students. Um, I'm excited about the future of our church when I see our kids. So today the high school is about 45% white, about 30% African-American students, about 12 to 14% Hispanic and 10% Asian. We have about 70 international students. Our dormitory has 19 different countries represented in it. And our enrollment is at a 20-year high. God has just been richly blessing the ministry there, but a lot of it has created some life lessons and some learning experiences about how do we kind of adjust to and understand and respect one another and grow, I would say, in our cultural competency. Um, at my side throughout 25 years in ministry in Milwaukee and the last uh, 18 beautiful years of marriage is my wife, Kim, and she's here today. She is my rock, uh, my encourager, um, the one who has supported me through this and assured me that I could still be in the wells at the end of this presentation today. So I'm praying for that. Okay, full disclosure. Kim, he had to put that picture up there. I'll tell you later. <laughs> so why are we here? This is our story maybe. As a synod, we, let's be honest, we've been in decline. Okay, we know that, right? Numerically, we've been in decline. This is what we look like right now, a snapshot in 2020 stats. So we're at about 340,000 members. But look at our diversity. 1%, 1.4 Hispanic, Latino, Black, African American, about 1.3, um, and just very little diversity within our Senate. We, we know the picture, we can look around the room, right? Um, to try to help us understand that picture on MLK Day, why we need to have a courageous conversation about where do we move forward on this with passion, zeal, in a way that um, allows us to, to ask for God's blessing on our, our synod and its future? Well, this chart from the statistical report of 2020, I think might help too in getting a better picture of the challenges we're facing. I'm gonna try the, the laser point here. Let's see if it explodes or it works. There it is. Just to try to break this down. So we have at least 407 congregations that say they have at least one Hispanic Latino member. But there's 15 of our congregations that say they have over 50 members. That means that 52%, a little more than that, of all of our Hispanic members are only in 15 congregations. So it's, they're little pockets of diversity. And that's true as you look down all of the different ethnic groups. But there's not a multi-ethnic diversity in our congregations in general. In fact, the, John Hine wrote in the statistical report, the Wells' low diversity rate, combined with the fact that any diversity is concentrated in a small number of congregations, merits honest discussion and prayer. Let us consider how we might better reach out with the gospel to all people groups. 
On MLK Day, that's why we're here, and that's why we want to have a courageous conversation on modeling what is gospel-centered unity. Look familiar? If this doesn't look familiar to you, you're either in the wrong room or just turn to the person next to you and say, I'm sorry, what is this? So what we tried to do was uh, to mold certain words out of these passages. This is a really important passage for us. Because remember, we're going to talk about unity, but ours is through a totally different lens of things that have been tried and actually haven't worked uh, because ours is gospel-centered. Who better than Wells, right? Who better than us? to be the leaders, to be the role models in gospel-centered unity. So this is the Great Commission. This is the reason, remember I talked about why and the how? This is the why. This is the reason that we focus on gospel-centered unity, to make disciples of all nations. Disciples of all nations, I call it the spread and the teach. So spread the word and then continuously teach, continuously model what the Great Commission is. I saw something years ago, and I think it might have been when I was in high school, I think it was at Wisco, as we call it, Wisconsin, Wisco. So one of my religion teachers had a painting, and it was of Christ with um, his arms out, and there were people from representing everything, from, as, as, as Granny would say, soup to nuts. And that's what I grew up with, that image in my mind of what Christ said while Christ was here, right? That this is what you do. I died for your sins, so now your charge is to go out, make disciples of all nations, spread the word, continuously teach, because we are what? We're human, right? We need constant, constant attention, and we, we need constant discussion, constant conversation. Next slide for me, Ken. So that's what I want you to think about. That's the why. It's the charge we've been given. It's the gospel-centered way that I would ask that you look at courageous conversations. So, while we got our charge, we have a lot of man-made barriers around things that stop us from actually doing that. We're going to quickly go through five barriers. Trust me, there are more. But we're going to go through five of them quickly. I like to move around a lot, so your eyes are going to do one of these uh, for the next uh, hour. Um, but what I would say to you is that the barriers are not made by us. Well, they are made by us. They're not made by Christ. They're man-made barriers. That's exactly what they are, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Love this. Be my witness in Jerusalem, in Judea, and in Samaria. How many of, well, I won't say how many, you better know the story of the Sumerian woman at the well. Yeah. I will tell you that is one of the first stories that actually kind of really touched me inside uh, when we were discussing it because I thought, you know what? There's someone, as you remember, Samaria was in the central, uh, central part. And uh, the Jews didn't necessarily like them. Okay, I call them the, the neighbors that you don't want to associate with. Really, that's what it was. You felt those were the people that were beneath you, the people that you, know, you didn't include, you didn't know their culture, you didn't understand their culture, you didn't want to go anywhere in the zip code area that touched you. That to me was the Sumerian woman uh, at the well. And that 
The Christ that I was learning about, the Jesus that I was being told, this is who saved you, actually made time for her. And that's to me what those circles are. Those are the circles of spreading the word, going out, going out past your zip code areas, going out and touching people everywhere. And that, as that spread throughout the Roman world, Samaria, the Samarian woman at the well, that's who we have to reach out. We're gonna talk about that in some of those barriers, geography, culture, all of those things that can separate us if we allow it to, if we allow it to. But I would suggest that the gospel-centered way is to celebrate it and be inclusive. Ah, what's highlighted in red? What unites us? Sin divides us, right? Love unites us. And that's what we as Wells, as Lutherans, have to always remember. When you engage in courageous conversations, when there are things that, that put obstacles and barriers in front of you, think about this, love one another. That's what you remember. If our command is to spread the word, teach the word, and love one another, how can you not have a gospel-centered approach to me to any conversation that you need to wade in. But also, also, how can you take that conversation, dig deeper, and we're going to do that tomorrow for any of you that come to our workshop. We're gonna give you some strategies to dig deeper. But how can you not take the charge that we've been given? I almost said you, but we've all been given that charge, right? How can we not take that charge and move past the barriers and to actually, um, making a difference. I'm just gonna ask you to kind of look around the room, look at your neighbor left and right. And as we talk about some of the barriers, I'd like you to think about who's missing, who's missing in this conversation. I wanna take us to Jesus' high priestly prayer and his prayer for unity. Jesus prays for his disciples, but he prays for those who are gonna believe through their message. So he prays for you, and you are the fulfillment of the prayer, as well as everyone throughout the, the centuries and across the continents who have come to faith in Jesus because the gospel message went out through Jesus' disciples. We're evidence of it. And people are, who are part of the Una Santa, or the Holy Christian Church, like we would speak of, are all part of the fulfillment of Jesus' prayer. As he said, he wanted to see this go out, I wanted to see this unity so that, so that the world might believe. That's interesting because when John uses that term world, he's talking about those who are not believing. And it, it seems to have a temporal purpose right now. He's saying, so that the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. That love, which John was talking about, Jesus' new command, was going to shape the way the church looked. Christ's love, our commitment. And this is fulfilled in the Una Santa. There is a perfect unity that we have, and thankfully it's, it's bigger than the wells. It's everyone who believes in Jesus Christ, not just the visible church, but at the same time, Christ wants the visible church to be a manifestation of this prayer being fulfilled too. And I don't think we sometimes think of that, but anyone who's done some cross-cultural work finds great joy in how the gospel cuts across what society can't seem to figure out. 
racial rifts, inequities, cultural divides. There's, there's something that happens within the church, and in those pockets of churches or people who get the privilege of working in those kind of settings, they begin to understand it and appreciate it. Because the unbelieving world will know God's love by seeing it in action. That's Jesus' point. They're going to see it in action, and they're going to believe it's real. It's not just words. It's deeds. There's a validity, a truthfulness, because the gospel's power does what we couldn't do by ourselves and what we can't. But through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the sacraments that he's given us, look what God does. In fact, um, Mark Diamas said there's a unique power and pleasure of God that in the midst of a diverse group of men and women, by their own will, they walk, worship, and work together. They don't have to. But when they walk, worship, and work together, that, that's what you see in those glimpses of the New Testament church. And what we see in cross-cultural ministry, those who have the privilege of getting to do it. You know that, um, maybe you don't know, 92.5% of Catholic and Protestant churches are not multiracial. And that's if you, they're like 80% one culture or more. So usually the definition for sociologists who kind of work on this stuff is you have to say you need 20% of attendees to not be of more than 20% of attendees not to be of the majority culture, to have a multiracial church. So only about 7.5% of American churches are actually multi-ethnic or multiracial. And then you start looking at the New Testament and you see lots of examples of how there were a lot of fears getting to that point, a lot of challenges getting to that point. You know, we're going to pick it up in Acts chapter 11. We're about halfway through the book of Acts before the gospel even seems to go outside of Jewish circles. It wasn't that Jesus hadn't said from the very beginning, you're going to be my witnesses in Judea, Jerusalem, uh, I'm sorry, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's going to go out. And it's going to cross culture. But it hadn't. So it took a little nudging for Peter at a noontime vision. The spirit had to, to move him, get him together with Cornelius. And then it took a persecution, finally, to move the church off the Shania and to send them, scatter them. But even then, it was only among Jews. And finally, in Syrian Antioch, something changes. And it's going to scatter the gospel. And it's going to spur all of the mission journeys of Paul from Antioch. Now, Antioch was a city of about a half million. It was the third largest city in the Roman world, behind Rome, Alexandra, uh, and then Antioch. And even when it was built, it was built to have ethnic quarters because that's the way people, even in ancient culture, worked and lived. Not together, but separately. When the city was built, it was actually given 18 different districts for the different ethnicities. So people lived in their own little quadrant in Antioch. And they worshiped their religion and their culture were all tied together with their ethnicity. It's still that way kind of today, isn't it? You see someone who's Indian, you say, you must be Hindu. You see someone who's Middle Eastern, you, you must be Muslim. You see someone who's Italian, you're Catholic. Uh, you're from Scotland, maybe you're Presbyterian. You're German, you're Lutheran, right? But what happened here in Antioch was like, metaphorically tearing down those walls and God was creating something new because no longer could people say, well, they're a Jew and they're, they're this ethnicity and they're that ethnicity and their religion and culture are all linked together. No. 
suddenly they had to have another name for them because they're walking and working and worshiping together and it's Jews and Gentiles. It's all these different groups coming. What do we call them? We can't call them Jews. We can't call them Gentiles. We can't call Ah, they're reflecting that love of Jesus. We're going to call them little Christ, Christians. And that's, that's where the disciples were first called Christ, Christians at Antioch. And it took over a decade until after Christ's ascension and all of that to get to this point. It's sad that there's still a lot of barriers that race needs to be broken down. Okay, so we, should we name a few of these for you? Remember, it's courageous conversation, so it's okay to be uncomfortable, and it's okay to be comfortable, right? If you can't ask a fellow whales a question, who can you ask? That's how I look at it, right? Uh, that's probably what's wrong with most of our country right now. We can't e ask each other questions, but what we can do when you approach any type of a conversation, that needs to be held, that needs to be had. You do it from a gospel-centered way of looking at it. Race, please know, race is a man-made category. It's a man-made way of how we look at each other. Okay, God didn't uh, make Adam and Eve and have a little uh, you know, pocket manual for them to say this is what race is, this is what, no, 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 no. It's man-made. And particularly in the United States, we use it uh, for classification purposes, but because it's not used for the right purposes, what does it do to us? It divides us, right? You see someone, they're different because of that. Instead of saying, oh, this is where, where we are in this nation, in this world, and that's more people for us to spread the word to. It's more people for us to teach to. So what do we learn about them? How do we learn how to communicate across culture, across barriers, across race? How do we do that so that we live out the Great Commission, the charge that we're given, that we spread the word, we bring others into the truth, others into our faith. So instead of looking at race as something that's divisive, I would suggest we celebrate it and think about all of those wonderful beings that God created that are there for us to connect with, to talk to them about Jesus Christ, to talk to them about our Savior. This is one of my favorite uh, little pictures. I just like this because what that says to me, not, you know, who, who we're getting ready to win the game, but what that does say to me is that it's all of us together in this, right? There's a place for everyone. There's a hand there that everyone might be able to connect with. Uh, representation really and truly uh, does matter. And what I always like to say when I see this one is that for better or for worse, that whole ancestry DNA uh, kick that everyone is on trying to find out who we are, none of us, none of us in this room is one thing. We're a mixture of all that God made and all that is good. So that's, that, I would suggest, is one of the strategies that you take out with you when you think about your background, your upbringing, how you focus, what world, what cultural world you live in, to remember that none of us is one thing. We've got the good of what uh, 
God made in each and every one of us. Uh, remember, take a look at what we have bolded here. He made all the nations. Our diversity is intended to cause us to seek him. He made all the nations and God said what? He did this so that we would seek him and reach out for him and find him. So what's the question? Okay, we're gonna get a little provocative here. What is the question that many of us say when we go to church or when we go someplace? Many of us, meaning many people who are judged by the diverse characteristics that people see when they walk in the room. Uh, we have questions, and that I'll let Ken ask the question on that one. Uh, but what is the question that you might want to know that many people uh, with diverse characteristics, our family, our Wells family, actually ask? This question kind of haunts me. Um, a few years ago, I was preaching at one of our churches in the city, friends with the president of the congregation, African-American man. And between the first service and the second service, he and I were standing outside talking. And he's talking about some of the challenges that he felt as an African-American man. And then he said to me, he said, look, he's born and raised in the Wells, lifelong Wells member. He said, I know what the Wells position is on abortion. And I agree with it. I know what the Wells position is on fellowship. I agree with it. I know what, what the Wells teaches about the Lord's Supper. I, I'm glad I do and I, I believe it. Then he looked at me and he said a question that I've not been able to get out of my mind. He said, so what's the Wells position on me? What he felt in his heart was like, we articulate, we're clear on our teaching. We're never silent on some issues. But where are we at stereotyping? racism and bigotry and ra racial reconciliation even. How often do we talk about it, teach about it? What's the synod's position on me? Interesting question. It's a question we all have to answer. Interesting question. We all need to answer that question. I answer it, hopefully, that the Senate's position on me is one that is welcoming, one that's inclusive, and I wanna make sure that everyone feels that way. Not only those that are already here with us, but those that we are trying to bring into the fold and to help them see the truth as well. Today is MLK Day. I don't know what, what's your position on that. What do, you, what do you think about that? It's interesting to me, as I look at like school calendars, how many schools in the suburbs do not take MLK Day up, and almost every school in the city does take MLK Day up. Is there some hidden curriculum in that? Does it maybe say to the white students in the school that does not take it off, this isn't that important. King's dream isn't that vital. The idea that the church could have an impact on changing society for the better on this issue, that we could reflect the love that made them first be called Christians at Antioch, could happen in our circles, could it? I'm proud of a place like Manitowoc Lutheran High School, but I found out they, a few years ago, or last year, had a whole day on diversity, brought an outside speaker, talked about it, wrestled with it. I'm really pleased that Martin Luther College has taken this day to have a guest speaker 
African-American man talk to their host and buddy, breaking up into workshops, wrestling with the issues of race, and try to make sure it's really clear what the synod's position is on these things. And I encourage you to think about that, to wrestle with that question. And you know what? Let's be honest. I didn't think much about it because I don't remember anything about King in my high school curriculum or my college curriculum or the seminary, obviously. You know, it's like it wasn't anything for me until I started serving in the city and having other conversations with people that I finally said, this is important to, to, to help my people understand I, I care about this. So, you know, there's only a handful of black students that are at Martin Luther College. Do you know what this day does for them? In a city that's not diverse, nothing against them all, I'm just saying it's not real diverse. It builds them up. It says to them, we care about some of the hurts maybe that you're feeling, maybe the questions that you have. Yeah. And you know what? It's doing a lot for the white students that are there too, who aren't going into a lily white world. Browning of America, they, they have to be prepared to be culturally competent, to understand, to, to, to challenge, and to bring Christ's love to people of different diversities than they are. So I'm excited about that. But then I also had to be honest and look back at my own preaching. So I started saying, okay, did I ever make applications to racism or prejudice or stereotyping before I got to the city? Why was it not there? Is it something that the groups that I was speaking to didn't need to hear about? Because that's someone else's problem. Really? I had, to be honest with myself, I hadn't noticed it. And then, you know, I started reading the scriptures in a different way. You see all this Jew and Gentile thing, and Paul having to say, actually having to say, one of the big mysteries was not just that Jesus Christ is God. In Ephesians, he makes the big mystery reveal that Jews and Gentiles are supposed to be heirs of the one promise. And you start reading that, and you can see kind of like, it's about race. Or you read about the Samaritan woman, and you say, yeah. in your Sunday school lessons, did we say it's racism for the Jews to not want to be with the Samaritans? Or is it just, we don't talk about that. So I think we can be clear. And I pray that we, it pricks our conscience, as it did mine, to, to see and to read how race really has impacted our world throughout, how Satan uses it to, to divide. And Jesus calls on us, through his love, to have gospel-centered unity. I think that's important, love. This is not about division. We allow it to be about division instead of it being um, about celebration. And I always like, and I'll just say this quickly uh, before we move on to geography. I always say that racism is not just a black-white thing, right? Racism occurs inside of races as well, okay? When I grew up, uh, there was something we called the brown paper bag test. And if you were lighter than the brown paper bag, there were certain places you could go. If you were darker, there were certain things you couldn't. So every ethnicity, every race has something that they need to take a look at, right? When it comes to being inclusive. And that's why I get excited when I talk about this, simply because I know that it's the gospel-centered approach that can make a difference. Because then you understand why you're doing it and your strategies are the best aligned to make it happen. I don't know what just happened there. This one's okay. Oh, there we go. Thank you. Um, I thought it was 
getting cataracts in about five minutes in the dark on this side. So um, geography, let's talk briefly about that. Uh, geography, we can cross geography. It's really nice to be in 2023, right? Because you can get anywhere in the world you want to go to. I think my high school class trip was to Madison, Wisconsin, something like that. Now these kids are like, oh, well, we're going to Italy. We're going to Mexico. I thought a high school class trip. But it's because the world you can navigate, right? You can navigate easier in this world. So geography should not be seen as a barrier. Let's go to the next slide. I like this one. So this shows just the US. Hopefully you know that. And what I always like to say is when I think about it not being a barrier, it also is not a barrier because we tend to be, well, I'd say more centered, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but more centered uh, in the Midwest part of the US. You know, it's those Baptist folks who take over the South, right? So that doesn't mean that we shouldn't go there, right? It's easier to get around. Don't let geography be a barrier. We have missions in, we have missions, uh, in places that it is much easier to get to. But the bottom line, the bottom line is that geography, you cross the barrier if you choose to make a difference. You never let it stop you. You can't continue as we can, not you, we. I'm part of this, right? We're all part of a solution but we can't continuously focus our connections in one area. I always like to say, it gets me in trouble sometimes, but I'll still say it, is that if you're having a homogenous discussion all your life, you've got a problem. Meaning that if the only people you see are people that look like you, that talk like you, that think like you, guess what? We're never going to advance Wales and our Lutheranism in every place that it can be and that it can be invaded. Next slide. Let's talk about culture. Culture. We talked about race, geography, culture. It's all intertwined. It's all mixed together. We've crossed geographical barriers in many ways. We have missions in different, missions in different places. Uh, we actually don't have some uh, in our own uh, U.S. Uh, in certain areas. But we still are struggling crossing these cultural barriers. We haven't, have we embraced other cultures? Uh, I grew up in Milwaukee, and when I grew up, I will tell you, there was, there's a, there was a strict dividing line, Wisconsin Avenue. It divided the city north and south. If you were African American or identified as black, you did not go across Wisconsin Avenue. You would not come back alive, and vice versa. You did not cross that line to go into those neighborhoods because you might not come back alive. And that's really what Milwaukee's, Milwaukee's civil rights movement was around, was marching across that line, trying to dissolve this invisible barrier and embrace other cultures. We're still a work in progress, but we're working on it, and it's getting better. And both sides of Wisconsin Avenue are definitely starting to diversify more. Um, we're, we're getting there. What I do like also is this slide. This makes me smile a lot. Are these not the faces of the future, the faces of the generations, the generations that we are charged 
to teach. We're their role models, right? We're their teachers. So if we don't exemplify the best of the best in courageous conversations, they're not going to grow up understanding that this is a piece of their culture, right? This is what they will bring. <clears throat> My dad, rest his soul as they say. My dad used to always say, you know, Joni, sometimes grown-ups just need to get out the way. They just need to get out the way. I was at a function and my girlfriend had her granddaughter there and I had brought uh, my great niece. And so kids were playing and there was another uh, young kid who was um, with someone who had come and they were all playing together. Then all of a sudden, everything stops. And I'm like, okay, because I had left the room. I came back and I thought, what's going on? And the, one of the young kids had used the N-word in a conversation with the other two kids. And not intentionally, they didn't realize it was a word they shouldn't say. They had heard the word, so the parent, you know, the adults in the room were all frenzied and all crazed and running around as if the world was going to end. And my, myself and my girlfriend simply said, wait, wait a minute, let's talk about this. Let's have that courageous conversation. The little one actually thought he was saying something nice. He didn't know. It was context. So that's why I say it's those faces that we have to be very careful about the role modeling because sometimes the courageous conversations occur in our own homes, right? That's the presentation of culture and why culture is so good. My final comment on culture, one of the things that I, you can tell I talk about Milwaukee a lot, but one of the things that I think Milwaukee actually does very well, we have something called uh, World Festivals. You come, come visit us, okay? Come, I'd say, around Memorial Day. Don't come before then, but around Memorial Day. And every weekend, we have a festival that celebrates different ethnicities. It's absolutely fabulous to walk through and see different races, different cultures, different ethnicities, having fun over food and conversation and sitting next to each other. So when you think about culture, it's okay to talk about it, it's okay to engage in it, and it actually makes life better. One of the things about culture that I've struggled with throughout the years, and this has helped me to try to, to wrestle with these two issues as far as a solution to some of the barriers that are man-made that we in the church then need, need to tear down. We wrestle with these two things, assimilation versus accommodation. So assimilation means you become like us, and there's certain things to just, it's about you become like us, and we're gonna teach you what we do. That's fine, it can be very evangelical. Same thing can be of accommodation. It's more like, what can I change, become like you, or make you more comfortable? We struggle sometimes to let love dictate that. We are not talking about giving up doctrine. We are talking about giving up preferences, though, about a congregation that may have one way of doing things that says, well, this culture does it a different way. Can we, ex can we adjust that? Um, can we make our way like theirs because it's gonna make it easier for them. And I see, see those things as something we sometimes wrestle with and we have to identify an issue of, is it an assimilation issue? Does this really need to be that they have to become like us? Or 
out of love, am I willing to change who I am and to become all things to all men so that some might possibly be saved? I heard that once somewhere. Okay. And, and we, we wrestle with that, I think, in cross-cultural ministry a lot, without, again, without conceding anything, doctrine. Okay, let's go to one of the easy topics to talk about in a sense. <laughs> we think. Worship style. Hey, we can put it into action right here. It's, this is a challenging thing. I, I have had some battles over this, I'll just be honest. I felt some scars because I sometimes have gotten the impression that there's sort of like one way of doing it and the whole idea of our ministry is that you would assimilate to our style of it. Now, I, I have done liturgical ministry throughout a liturgical style throughout my ministry. But I do think it offers lots of options to do things differently. Um, to introduce gospel music to a congregation that was all white. And I remember at a uh, dedication of our first dedication of our school building, we brought in St. Philip's Gospel Choir. We didn't have a gospel choir. We had no one who would do anything that would even look remotely good. So we brought in St. Philip's, and one of my friends um, was watching some of those 70-year-old little widows, and they're kind of wondering, how are they going to react to St. Philip's Gospel Choir? And it started out sort of like this, and then all of a sudden their arms were out, and then he said, I saw him tapping and trying to sing along with it. it. It was not like we're giving up all of our stuff, but we're getting more stuff. And that's the way we have to approach, I think, worship style. Somewhere there's, there's like all these different ways of expressing it. We can't be so arrogant to think that there's only one way or our way. God's given a whole smorgasbord of opportunities. And I think, again, we, we can bring in elements. It doesn't mean giving everything up. It means getting more. And I, I do struggle when we have a concert. I'm going to always tell this story quickly. We had a concert not so long ago in which we did a lot of very traditional things. And then we had one gospel piece. And I'll tell you, we did that gospel piece in chapel, and the students really felt they were, you could just tell they were really encouraged by this. Was it perfect? Probably not, but it was wonderful. I got a long letter from someone who's a very traditional, this is the one way of doing things. Uh, like, really? We did all these other, we can't accept one in a different genre? Let's stretch ourselves. Because what it says to others is, we're trying. We may not do it as well as we could, but we're trying, and we understand that God doesn't like choose one style against the other. He loves to be praised in whatever manner we can praise him. May God bless that, that we could accommodate. Well, we can also assimilate some of our styles. Okay, now I don't know how I drew the short, short straw on this one, Joan. So it's been nice, being, well. it's been nice be being okay. in the wells. I loved it. Um, it will be okay. <laughs> is God a Republican, a Democrat, or is he independent? Just asking. Just asking. Just asking. I'm just. Um, so I go to Risen Savior, and I said the neighborhood had changed. It's about 80% in the city of Milwaukee vote Democratic. Don't go into that. Oh. Now the question is, did that come from the back or did that come from above? I don't know. I don't know. Okay, let me. Oh. There you go. Thank you. There's an emergency COP meeting in the back room. So 
So um, I'm at Risen Savior, okay? 80% in Milwaukee vote Democratic. My neighborhood is all black. So imagine if I put a bumper sticker that's political on the back of my car or a placard in my, in my yard of the parsonage. What does it say to the neighborhood? Uh, you know if you're gonna come here, you have to be that. Um, and you like cut up your audience for the real issues you wanna talk about. Because politics uses issues to divide, to anger people, to get them riled up, to get them to the polls. That's not what the gospel does. And I challenge us to think about that, and I'll tell you why. So my mother-in-law and father-in-law, um, they spent most of their life in Arizona. They were every church member, or every Sunday church members, very active, he was an elder. He was a World War II vet with a Purple Heart, lost his eye, still had shrapnel in him the rest of his life, my father-in-law, a, a prince of a man. My mother-in-law volunteered at the Lutherans for Life Center in Arizona. Guess what? They were both working class Democrats. They felt like the Democratic Party identified more with the working class and with unions and others that they cared about than the Republican Party. They didn't tell anyone this. It was secret in the, in the church, I think. Um, but when the, they, they love Bible class too. And I'll, I'll be honest, they had the best devotional life of anyone I've ever seen. And yet, their pastor started talking about politics a lot in Bible class and quoting Rush Limbaugh, and they stopped going. What a tragedy. You know, our nation is very divisive and divided on politics. It's a man-made thing. We are citizens of a greater kingdom. Now, I vote every election, and I care about politics personally, but does that need to be on my sleeve? I pray that it's not on yours if you want to reach across barriers that man has created. And in a divisive society on these, these issues, I think we have to take a step back to try to say we are, again, not trying to remove half the people we'd like to talk to about the gospel. So you survived it. <laughs> he worries too much. I'll just say that much. Other folks' ideas and thoughts and actions, instead of staying gospel-centered, gospel-focused on what it is that we're charged to do and being inclusive as to, as to how we want to do that. So now you know the why, why we think about gospel-centered unity. And now let's talk a little bit about, a little bit about the how, but a little bit about whose job is it to do this. And I would suggest that it's truly a team effort. It's for each one of us. It's not for because you identify or were classified uh, by our country as white. Is it your job alone? Absolutely not. It's all of our jobs, right? Whoever lives and breathes inside of Wales, it's our job to come together on gospel of unity. It's a team effort. It's interesting, Barna did some research um, and just saw this stat, like 47% of Christians think their church, uh, less than 47% think their church is inviting. So, you know, every church wants to have people invite visitors. I'm not talking cross-cultural, just talking invite your friends. But if like half the people think the church isn't welcoming, we got a problem. A problem I think we have to work on, and you're the solution because you can be the spark plug that makes the change. Now I gotta tell a story. Um, we have a steel pan drum orchestra. Shout out to Toronto. You helped supply it. Thank you. Um, they're here. They're here. And they went, out on, they went out to one of our local churches. And one of our faculty members 
who is African-American, has a son in Viking Steel. Now, our kids already know who I'm talking about. Please don't tell them. And she wanted to invite some of her friends to come along. And so she did, unchurched friends, because she thought they'll come along to see her son play and to go to church. They liked the sermon, they liked the church service, and at the end, this is what happened though. The, a person came up to them and said, ask them, after saying welcome, but ask them if they've ever go to a church like this or only when they have a kid playing. Ouch. So do you, do you go to a church like this or only when you have a kid, your kid playing? She said yes to the, to the question, and then he followed up with this question. But have you ever been to our kind of church? And she said yes. Now, you have to know, she's actually a member at Grace downtown, so yeah, she had been to a church like this before. But the, the question and the answer, and here's the kicker, it was the pastor of the congregation. Um, her friends, then said, um, how can you, to, just to her quietly, how can you take such questions from people who are supposed to be loving and welcoming and so kind? And one of her friends responded, see, that's why I don't go to church. And I say that because just one incident can leave a mark on someone really for a lifetime. You know, it can. And while you were saying that story, I kept thinking, well, you know, it's easy to to look back, right? It's easy to think about what I would have done. You know, that's always the easy part of it. But I looked to my pastor, listen up. I looked to my pastor, you're the leaders. You are our spiritual leaders on earth. I need to, you're the people, I, the person I come to. Um, and how you present yourself is always what I would think of if I'm a visitor to your church. One of the things that I think uh, Pastor Ray does very, very well is when we end up a service, he'll say, hey, do you see an empty seat next to you? Well, come back so you can fill that seat uh, next, next Sunday. Feel free to bring a friend, bring others. It's a way that we make people feel is of, is, is of such importance. And when you are the leader, you are the role model. You set the tone. So if you don't feel welcome. So, so what, yeah. should, what should that pastor have said to, he's got three African-Americans, no one else in the church is African-American, and he wants to make them feel welcome, I, I, I think, I hope. Well, I, you know, it's not rocket science. I think what you say is, it's great to have you here, it's great to see you, uh, if you don't have a home church, we would love, I would love for you to come visit with us next Sunday. The reason that you're here is probably, I wouldn't say this, but the reason that they were there to me is probably secondary. I would think that the pastor's role would be to make sure that you come back. And how do I do that? Because I make them feel welcome. I don't ask, have you ever been to our type of church? I'm not quite sure I know what that means. I would say, welcome to our church. We would love to have you come back, fellowship with us. Is there something going on on a particular Sunday you'd like to invite them to or even in the week? But I just think we have, you know, we're all human. And I, I always go back to that. None of us is perfect. We have good days and bad days. So I would just suggest that we always think about 
uh, and you'll see this picture later, of Christ with open arms and open hands. And how do you make that happen? Oh, you dug these out, huh? Okay, these are pictures of me when uh, I have the extreme pleasure of representing our country uh, in the United Nations. I occupied the General Assembly seat in the United Nations for a couple of years, and it was, it was an honor to do so. What it did, oh. It helped me see across every boundary and barrier you can think of what's actually going on in the world, and no offense if there are any press here, but everything you read in the press ain't true. Uh, so for a while, I actually stopped watching a lot of news because I knew what the truth was and couldn't tell anyone. So um, these are some of the pictures, and, and the room was quite interesting. I, I thank God uh, all the time for that experience. But this is the story I want you to focus on. Very seldom, did a lot of international travel. Uh, oh, I gotta tell you this real quick. I know we're running out of time, but what the heck? We got all the time. Uh, so, uh, one of the fun things that I got to do, I had like five, they had fax machines. I had five fax machines in my condo, so when the fax would print, I, I knew exactly who it was coming from. And I had five dedicated phones, so if the phone rang, I knew exactly who was calling me. So my phone rang, and the person on the other end said, we have a special assignment for you. you know, I was used to that. I said, okay, what is it? They said, you are going to represent the U.S. in a discussion. At that time, Tony Blair was the prime minister. Um, across the ocean and the I'm trying to remember the president of I think it was Liberia was Ellen Johnson Sirleaf so I represented the US we co-led a task force are you ready the ethical use of outer space it was so much fun it was so much fun so just know you can sleep well at night because anything that was up there that shouldn't be we took care of it okay I just had to take that just had to share that with you. So, my real story that I want you to focus on, though, is I very seldom got a day off. It was seven days a week, you know. It, it, it is what it is, what it was. But I finally had a Sunday off. It was like a little child. So, I put my little comfortable clothes on, and I'm strolling down 42nd Street. I'm in New York. That's where the United Nations is, folks. It's not in DC, it's in New York. And we're not, we were not allowed as ambassadors to go alone, so my driver is trailing behind me, but I told him, I want to walk. I don't want to be driven everywhere. You know, that's why I gained 12 pounds while I was there. So, got up and walked, and I thought, I saw this church. And then I went past and I thought, oh, it's a Lutheran church. Who knew? So, I peeked in. Now, if you don't know, I can't speak for all people of color, but I can speak for black folks. We peek in. We don't just walk into places. Because, true, you don't know how you're going to be accepted or treated. So, I peeked in, and I thought, okay, the service is getting ready to start. I'm going in. I'll just sit in the back. They can either smile or if they don't smile. You know, no offense, I'm not here to see you. I'm here to talk to the Lord for a little while, and then I'll leave. I go in, I have to tell you, 
Those were the most welcoming people I ever met in my life. She ran over to hug me and almost knocked me down. But I will tell you, she could have knocked me down because it was a wonderful reception. And I felt so welcome. And they asked me who I was, I told them. They sent me little notes. Uh, if you're free, you know, come, this is happening here, this is happening here. So when we talk about making people feel welcome, the lens that I live through is different from your lens, from the person who's next to you, it's different from their lens. I can't walk in every place and automatically know, just because I'm Wells, that the church, the building, the congregation, the activity that I'm walking into is going to be welcoming to me. I pray that it is, but I also am cautious until I know that I'm welcome. So when we think about it, bring on that welcoming attitude, that welcoming climate for each and every one of us. So what would you do? What do we have to do to make people feel welcome? I call it our home because our church really is our home, right? It's how you make people feel welcome at your home. It's clear that the place where God's people connect with his word and sacraments most often is a church. But that's not where our callings end, our work life ends, our family ends. So we have other opportunities. And just want to kind of end with this thought. Don't let where you're planted keep you from understanding and living out your gospel-centered unity. We need it everywhere. It's not just in the city that we're talking about today. We're talking a lot about black-white issues, but that's not it. It's all over. It's the people that are a little bit different than us, who have a different educational background, who are different in uh, and perhaps economics, our education, as I said. So our, our challenge is to uh, reach out to them and live Absolutely. in a way that just shows this um, love that is working through us for the sake of the gospel. Well, the next slide for me. This is, I like this. Remember, I keep saying, I said this when we first started. We're all human. You know, we're doing our best. But uh, Granny, rest her soul, Granny would always say, mm man-made and devil-driven. So that's what I grew up, that's the kind of grandmother I grew up with. But she would always say, I told you that was man-made and devil-driven. So that's, you know, that, that stays in my head. Um, but what does God say? There's no difference between Jews and the Gentiles. All have sinned and all are justified freely. So it doesn't matter if you're in, and don't ask me why I'm picking on Mankato, but if you're in Mankato or Fargo or Milwaukee or wherever you are, wherever you're planted, you can still work on gospel-centered unity and being inclusive. I'd like to share a story with you. It's a true story. It's a little bit adaptive, but um, the, the elements of it are all true. And it's, it's actually was a faculty member from our high school and who shared this story with me and I asked him to write it down. I said, can you put it down in writing so I can share it? Because I think, again, it shows the challenge, the opportunities, and the tools we have. So if you'll indulge me. I live in a private subdivision with 38 properties. It's a delightful slice of Americana, a place where my children can make chalk art in the road with no fear of crime or traffic. Sin, however, permeates all of creation, and we are no exception. Tessa and Char are a beautiful example of the American dream. She's a blonde-eyed, a blue-eyed blonde. Um, he is from South Africa, 
with skin like ebony and a laugh like rolling thunder. These two own a home hospice service and are generally fantastic people. Their two children are perpetually over at my house, either playing baseball in the yard or helping my own children pilfer cookies from my kitchen. Like the other neighbors we have from Muskego, France, or Serbia, these kids are part of our neighborhood family. One particular evening last spring, I was in the process of building a garage on the back of my property. I heard an angry exchange between my neighbor Brian and the occupants of a Jeep I'd never seen before. While I couldn't quite make out what was being said, I could tell it was hostile. It ended after about two minutes, and, it, and I went on about my evening. The next evening, one of my neighbors asked me if I heard. When I inquired further, they told me the details of the exchange from the previous evening. Brian, the neighbor, had been drinking again and was doing yard work near the road. He made the following observation. There was a tricked out Jeep he'd never seen before. It was driving slowly up and down the road, making several passes. The occupants of the Jeep were black. His response, to which I particularly heard the evening prior, was to walk into the street and to the path of the road, confront the drivers and say, what the F are you doing here? I took some parts out. Um, you people are effing creepy. You don't belong here. Go back to where you came from. It was Char. He had just purchased a new vehicle. He was teaching his 16-year-old daughter how to drive in our safe, traffic-free subdivision. Char handled it with dignity. Sir, I live here. We are neighbors. I live at the top of the hill. We met two summers ago before COVID. At this point, Brian realized his error and tried to play it off, but the damage was done. The issue buzzed about my neighborhood for the next several days. Initially, I wasn't sure what, if anything, to do. After hearing from four other neighbors while jogging, walking my dog, and mowing my lawn, it became clear something had to be done. I prayed for wisdom and clarity on what the Lord would have me do. And in my Bible study, I immediately came across Ephesians 4.15, Speak the truth in love. I asked the Lord for an opportunity to say something and immediately saw Brian standing in his yard. For a moment, I considered the neighborhood conversations. They all included quotes such as, I don't want this hateful family living near me. Can we force him to move? And even, it would sure be a shame if his house burned down. It's remarkable how Satan can convince us to allow one sin to justify another. I thought of each of these and realized they all carried the same essential ingredient that Brian's comments had, hatred. I thought of Matthew 18, and I asked my neighbors, has anyone talked to Brian about this? No one had. In my approach to Brian's yard, I prayed again a silent prayer for wisdom in the moment. I asked Brian what had happened, and he again tried to minimize what had happened as a misunderstanding. I stood my ground, squared up to him, and directly quoted him verbatim. I was on the roof, brother. I saw you talking, and you were angry. It's worth knowing that I didn't hear what you said from Shar or Tessa. I heard it from Lisa, Mark, Shelley, and Lynn. Now this is what you're known for. Brian, you mentioned to me that you're a Christian. This is a good thing because it means you have a pathway to fix this. Brian broke down in tears. He put his face in his hands and he said, this is not who I am. I want to crawl in a hole and die. My response was rather quiet. I placed my hand on his shoulder and I said as firmly as I could, no, that's not an option for the Christian man. 
Christ paid for this, and the situation calls for repentance. Hiding or ignoring it would not do anything, or would not be anything but cowardice. In the moment, you are what you fear you are, a man who did something overtly racist. Whether or not you, that becomes who you are going forward depends on what you do next. You need to make this right. Tessa and Shar are good people. Go to them. Own your actions and apologize and ask for forgiveness. Do this and I believe they will forgive you or simply write a letter. I'll help you. Write it if you'd like. Brian paused for a moment and said, no, this is something I, I need to do myself. Thank you for telling me the truth. Later that evening, I watched Brian walk up the hill to their house in the rain with an envelope in his hand. Minutes later, he returned. The next night, I saw the same thing. And the night after, I later learned that he struck out three times, they weren't home, before finally connecting. Tessa came by our house and, and had said that he appeared to be genuinely sorrowful, repentant. He apologized and was granted the forgiveness he sought. She was also profusely thankful that someone had actually confronted him. This is the power of Christ as granted to us by his gospel message. Not that we are free to avoid sin, but that this sin, even the sin of wounding others with racism, is freely forgiven when the framework for handling the conflict in Matthew 18 is followed. I saw Brian a week or so later. He walked into my yard and shook my hand. I feel so guilty, he said. In that moment, I was able to shake my head and, while smiling and said, nope, you leave that guilt at the foot of the cross where it belongs, learn from your mistake and move on. It's worth noting that one last rumor about Brian was spread. Something that seldom happens had happened, that he had apologized and had been forgiven. We have the tools, my friends. We know that God has given them to us. We know what heaven's gonna look like and our prayer is that your vision of your local church is a vision of what heaven's gonna look like because that's what the end is in mind that God would have us work at with a privilege in gospel ministry. Thank you for letting us share some of our thoughts with you. The courageous conversation is something that each and every one of us needs to think about, needs to think about how we weigh into it. We need to reach out across barriers, across boundaries. Remember, they're man-made. God had nothing to do with that, and he's going to ask us about it on the last day. So we need to take care of that. We have tools to do it now that they didn't have. The disciples didn't have the internet, use it wisely. Uh, they didn't have ancestry DNA to know that we're all, we're all made different. There's no one thing about any one of us that makes us one over the other. But the most important thing that we hope that you get out of this is that there are ways to connect. We nicely challenge our Senate and our funders to think about ways to support Wells as the leader in gospel-centered unity. We have the word, we have the commission, we know what to do, we can do this. And if our funders will help with some creative and innovative ways, to fund creative thinking about connecting, we'd love to hear it. 
So thank you for being attentive. Thank you for caring about this message. We will be doing, I think, our workshop twice tomorrow. Uh, so some of you, uh, we will see there. But now, again, we want to thank you and open it up to questions because that's what this John, is about, a courageous conversation. Uh, we have a good 60 questions that was submitted. We don't have time to get to 60. Uh, we may only have time to get to one. So I'm going to share two. Okay. You, can, you can pick which either one you want to go first. So uh, a question asked by a bunch of people summarized like this. You're probably going to get the strategy in your breakout tomorrow, but for the sake of a larger group, can you share the one top thing you'd recommend Wells individuals do if they want to help their congregation reach and serve people from more diverse people groups outside of being a loving and welcoming church? Are there tangible ways to reach out to other people groups when your congregation is not all that diverse? That's one question. The second one, in reference to the slide Dr. Fisher shared about the percentage breakdown of ethnic groups in Wells, historically our synod has been uh, centered in more rural areas. Would you say that is a factor in those percentages? And do you think this would speak to the importance of attempting to do more mission work in more urban areas? Either of those. Okay, I'll take the first one and be brief, and you take the second one. How's that? Gospel-centered unity. Okay, so there are strategies and ways that we can reach out. I will tell you, one of the things that um, I'm working on right now is to be able to connect K-8, right? Urban and rural K-8. Haven't given up on those of us who are a little out of that space, but they get it. I mean, no one is born with racism. No one is born with a lack of wanting to connect across culture, right? That's learned. That's learned behavior. So good strategies right now are you may not have the inclusivity that you're looking for where you live. It doesn't matter. We have ways of connecting. And as, and as I said, we can use technology. If you don't have it in a rural setting or it's not as good in your urban setting, go to the technical school systems in your area. They have, they have technology hookups and they can help you connect with congregations and schools that are in a more diverse uh, or inclusive space. And that goes both ways. If the church is predominantly African American, the school is predominantly African American, you need to connect outside of that with students and uh, our Wells colleagues in rural settings. So it takes a little bit of creativity. Uh, you can't make people move to where you are and you can't always go to a different place and grab people to come back. But there are ways to correctly use technology uh, to connect. And I don't know if it is coming up on this slide at all, but our email addresses should be somewhere and feel free to use them and I'm happy to answer any questions deeper through that quickly, my cell phone, and I don't care if I give mine out because everyone in Wisconsin knows it. So 262-385-8002, 262-385-8002, call me. So the second question, Hello? I, the, uh, the answer to the second question is yes. 
the, the question was about um, this idea that is it is there some historical things here? We tended to get Missouri sit in the city, and we took the country, and that's historical. Um, I, I think we often don't know what to do next, and so we've had a lot of just silence on the issues because we haven't had experience with them. But I will say this. I'm really excited about the young men that are coming out of our seminary and putting cultural competency um, as part of what they do. And I see it in our young pastor at St. Peter's. I see it in a lot of the young men that I have interaction with. So I think it's something we're doing better and better. And yes, we need to invest in it. Um, we invest in a lot in Hispanic ministry, and I'm glad of that. My son's Puerto Rican. My son-in-law is Puerto Rican. Um, but I also think we need to do more uh, cross-culture, especially in the African-American community. And so there's challenges we have, but I think they're not insurmountable. Give your thanks to Dr. Prince.